Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 34. We'll be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. Before we read our passage and ask for God's help one more time, let's bring ourselves up to speed in terms of uh, what has been happening that leads up to what really is, is the climactic event in the Golden Calf episode that runs through chapters 32 through 34. Uh, as a result of the people's sin in chapter 32 with their blatant idolatry and spiritual adultery, uh, God had threatened to destroy his people by allowing his anger to burn until it overflowed and consumed them. Moses interceded on behalf of the people and asked God to restrain his anger, which God did. Moses continued to pursue God, asking for pardon and forgiveness, but at least initially uh, it was unclear whether or not God would grant a full pardon to his people. As Moses continued to intercede and press for God's uh, renewed favor, Moses comes in a very uh, telling passage the, where we were last week in chapter 33. And Moses himself says that no matter what, no matter what blessings or gifts or promise fulfillments that you give us, the thing that separates us from all the other people of the earth is your presence with us. That's what we need that's the sign of your favor. We'll know, in other words, if we could paraphrase it this way, we'll know that you have forgiven us if you return to us. Or, perhaps better said, if you bring us back to yourself. And so the Lord in chapter 33 agrees to do that, agrees to go with Moses and the people into the promised land. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses wants some further assurance that God will in fact do that, that he will remain with his people and that he won't cast them aside because of their sin. And as a way to do that, he asks for God to show him, show me your glory. So I don't just want to hear that you will remain with us. I want you to show me, give me a sign that you are with us, that you will remain with us. Let me actually see you as you are, is what Moses, I think, is asking for in so many words. And on the one hand, God says, well, Moses, nobody can see me for who I am and live. However, I will allow my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim my name. I will tell you something about myself that will give you the assurance that you're looking for. And that brings us to chapter 34 then. What Moses has asked for to actually be able to see or to know God more deeply, that request is being granted in chapter 34. And this is God on his own terms, in his own words, revealing to Moses, and by extension to us, who he truly is. Follow along with me then in Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. 
So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he proclaimed the name of the Lord. I, I, by the way, just to pause here, there's a question. Is that Moses calling on the name of the Lord or is that the Lord proclaiming his own name? I, I lean a little bit towards the latter, that it's the Lord descending, proclaiming his name. And now in verse 6, we're going to hear what it is that he proclaims. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see this morning, to see more clearly who you are, not who we think you are, not who we feel you are, or not who we think you ought to be, but who you have declared yourself and demonstrated yourself to be. Do that, Father, for our comfort and our good. Father, do it for those who perhaps have not come to know you, so that as they hear about this God that we worship, they would be spurred to some form of godly jealousy and discontent, that they would want to know this God who reveals himself in this way to undeserving people. We pray this because of the revelation that you have made to us in the person of your Son, because of the work of your Spirit in our midst. Amen. So what is God like? That ultimately is the question that's at play here. When Moses in, in chapter 33 says that he wants to know your ways, when he says to the Lord, I want to know your ways, what Moses is asking for is not merely to know what kind of things God does, but he wants to know something about what God is like, what makes him tick, what are his purposes? What are his intentions? Specifically in this context, what are, what are you like? What will you be like for your people as we go forward? But what are you like? We're in a crisis moment here. We're, we're on the precipice. This whole thing could fall apart. We need to know something about what you are like, who you will be to us and for us if we're to have any confidence of moving forward. 
If someone asked you the question, what is God like? How would you answer that? If you have kids or grandkids, you may have heard a question like this before. Maybe not in that actual phrasing, what is God like, but along those lines, asking questions about God. What is God like? If someone were to ask you to describe God, how would you describe him? Maybe we should ask a follow-up question to that. Not only how would you describe him if someone asked you what God is like, what do you really think God is like? What do you feel like God is like? Right? In other words, beyond the lip service that we can pay to God's character and God's nature, depending on how you were to answer that question, what do you, what do you know of God in your own heart, in your own experience? Who do you believe and know God to be? I find that in my case, oftentimes, what I confess with my mouth is not exactly what I confess with my heart. And in those cases, if you're anything like me, the only hope and confidence you have is to say, well, praise the Lord that even God is greater than my heart. And his nature and his character to me and to you is not determined by my shallow thinking and feeling. So we're going to try to do this, answer this question, what is God like in, in two ways? And then if we have time, maybe we'll have a third point by way of response to seeing what God is like. So, number one, we're going to see that in answer to the question, what is God like, we're going to say that God remains holy. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 4. God remains holy in part. To say that God remains holy is to say, well, He remains who He has already shown Himself to be. All right, we'll, we'll explain that in just a moment here. And then number two, in verses 5 through 7, which is really the heart of the passage this morning, God reveals that he is great in loving kindness. He is both holy and he is full, overflowing even, in loving kindness. And then depending on how much time we have, number three, we want to consider that coming to that realization, the more clearly we see who God is as he's revealed himself and who he is for us, the only proper and right response to that is humility and worship. So what is God like? Number one, God remains holy. Look at verses one through four. Just start with the first verse. The Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Not very difficult to see what's going on here or what's being represented or symbolized by this replacing of the two tablets. Remember that when Moses went down the mountain, when God told him what was happening down below, and when he went down and saw with his own eyes the idolatry, the immorality, the the infidelity of the people that as he descended the mountain with the two tablets, the sign of God's covenant with his people, he smashed the tablets. Not, we don't think, 
not because he just lost control and he was just looking for something to smash, but in something of a symbolic gesture fitting of the anger and the chaos that had been created by their sin and disobedience, smashing the tablets was a way to demonstrate that they had broken, they had smashed and destroyed their covenant relationship with the Lord by abandoning Him. So when God says in verse 1 then, when He tells Moses to go get a couple of tablets so that we can replace the tablets that you smashed, for all intents and purposes, what God is indicating here is, Moses, because of the forgiveness, because of the reconciliation that you have been seeking for your people, that I have granted, one of the ways that we're going to do that, we're going to reinstate, as it were, the covenant. We're going to show that the covenant has not been broken, has not been removed, that it continues to remain and stand in spite of the people. Now, here's the thing. Notice, though, that when God asked for two tablets to be brought so that he can write the words on the tablet, just like the words that were written on the former tablet, there is both encouragement, or we might say comfort, and also conviction that works at the same time. On the one hand, to say that the Lord is going to give to Moses exactly what he gave him from the first is an indication that the Lord in grace and mercy is bringing his people back to himself without any change of stipulation or requirement of the covenant. In other words, when God is going to bring them back, even though they have broken and violated it and shown themselves unworthy of it, when God brings them back and when he gives them his word, his word remains exactly the same to them. He does not say, he does not say, well, in light of your sin, in order for you to, be, to come back and to enter back into my good graces, we need to add on a couple of requirements. I mean, I knew you people were bad and sinful. I didn't know you were this bad. We obviously need to put some additional safeguards in place. Let me add on another command or two. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that being reinstated, being brought back into his covenant graces comes at a probationary period. You must wait a period of time before you will be full-fledged members of my covenant. It's exactly the same. What God declared and revealed to his people in his word remains the exact same word that they find when the Lord graciously brings them back. His word has not changed an iota. That's comforting. The Lord's word remains. What is convicting or sobering is that the, the, the Lord's word has not changed. In other words, it could be very easy if you think of a parental relationship or an employer-employee, something like that, to say, well, you know, we took a good shot with these, with these ten commands. And wouldn't you know it, you people couldn't even handle the first two. 
So maybe we need to rework it or we need to revise the covenant stipulations and we need to make it more attainable for you. Maybe I was unrealistic in my expectations for you, in my directives, therefore we'll soften this a little bit, we'll make it more more appropriate, more fitting for you in your weakness or in your sinful predilections That way we can continue to enjoy this relationship together. He doesn't do that either. When you ask, what is God like? And when you ask more specifically, what is God like for sinful people? At least one answer that you have to give is that God is the kind of God who remains true to his word for better or for worse. The reason that this is important, to say that God's word remains, that it is not altered when we sin, it is not altered when God grants forgiveness, is because there is a sneaking suspicion in our minds and hearts, our fallen, twisted hearts, that maybe, just maybe, forgiveness, when we receive it from the Lord, signifies a change in Him. And God does not change. His forgiveness for His people is not God forgetting what He has said or who He is. He remains the same. His compassion for his people is not God compromising who he is. He remains the same in his word and in his actions to his people, even in the midst of our sin. The other thing that we want to say, not only does God remain the same in his word, but he remains the same in his essential character and nature, which is really the the heart of what goes on here in verses 1 through 4. One of the things that you'll notice if you have a little bit more time and if you want to do the compare and contrast yourself is to take these few verses in the beginning of chapter 34 and to compare it with some of the commands or instructions that God gives to Moses and the people in chapter 19 and chapter 24 when God comes down onto the mountain for the first time. Strikingly similar. When God descends on the mountain to meet with his people the first time, God is the one who sets the boundaries to say who may approach and who may not approach. Here, he does the exact same thing. The only one who can come to me is Moses. No one else can come near, no one else can approach. Just as at the first time when the Lord says, make sure that the people do not draw near to the mountain, do not even let them touch it, don't even let the animals come near and touch it, he says again, even the animals are not to come near when I come down and make my presence known to you on this mountain. In other words, whatever you want to say about how God is treating his people in chapter 34, by restoring the relationship that he has with his people, you cannot describe that restoration, that renewed relationship in any way that would minimize God's 
eternal holiness. God is coming to confirm with Moses that he really is receiving his people back to him. But Moses, I'm receiving these people back to me, not in any way because I am loosening or diminishing or watering down who I am. Hold your place here in Exodus 34. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. And skip down to verses 28 and 29. Last two verses of the chapter, and then we're going to jump from the end of chapter 12 over into chapter 13. This comes on the heels, by the way, these verses that we're going to read, this comes on the heels of the author of Hebrews making a contrast between the covenant at Sinai and the new covenant in Christ. And he talks about how the covenant at Sinai was a fearful thing when God descended and caused the mountain and the earth to shake and consumed it with his fire and in the cloud and the people could barely even stand to hear audibly God speaking through the thunder. But then as a way to encourage or to comfort, he says, but that's not the, com- the covenant that you've come to. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, to the, ho- to the heavenly Jerusalem as a way to extend comfort and encouragement to the people. Nevertheless, nevertheless, listen to what he says at the end of chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. If you are here this morning as a result of God's grace, you ought never to forget that His grace in no way diminishes his holiness, and his call to you to be holy as he is holy. If he forgives you ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times in a day, not one moment, not one act or pronouncement of forgiveness is given, is granted to you such that he becomes less holy than who he eternally is. Our God was, is, and ever will be a consuming fire. We ought to worship him with reverence and awe. He is a God who welcomes us in, through the sacrifice of his son, 
but he is God nonetheless. He is not someone that we can be comfortable with. Look in chapter 13, Hebrews 13. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Restoration does not mean that God is indifferent to the way that his people live their lives. God grants forgiveness to his people. He restores and he renews so that we may continue to serve him and obey him secure in our relationship going forward. So back to Exodus 34, if we're to ask the question, what is God like? Who does he show himself to be? God shows himself to be the same both in his word and in his character. He never changes. Number two, We might be tempted to say, but God reveals himself as full of loving kindness. Don't use but for the conjunction there. It's and. It's not God is holy, but he is also full of loving kindness. It is God is holy and he is full of loving kindness. Don't, don't pit the one against the other. It can't be done. So God remains the same. He remains holy. He remains unapproachable as he is unless he is to make a way for his people to come. And also, he, on his own terms, reveals more about himself to Moses and the people that they have not yet heard and that they have not yet learned. That's in verses 5 through 7. This same God who cannot be seen, who cannot be approached, who cannot be touched or handled, who inspires rightful fear and dread because he is completely independent and other and transcendent and not like us is nevertheless in verse 6 compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding overflowing in loving kindness and faithfulness he keeps, he preserves 
loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Let's just pause there for a second. This unapproachable God comes, approaches Moses, and says, I will tell you who I am and what I'm like. This is not Moses projecting onto God what he hopes God is like. This is God in his own words declaring to Moses, this is who I am. And of all the things that God could say, of all the things that would be appropriate and fitting for Moses to hear after he has been interceding for a sinful and rebellious people, how does God make himself known to Moses and the people? He makes himself known as a compassionate and gracious God. He's compassionate. He has affectionate mercy for his people. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. This almighty God who speaks and the cosmos comes into existence condescends to care for weak Bundles of dust that would not exist if he did not hold them together every moment of their existence. He has compassion on us. Weak as we are, he is compassionate, he is gracious. He gives to his people what they don't deserve. He's a gift-giving God. He is generous. He is not stingy. He's slow to anger. Is he? That's not what it sounds like in Exodus 32. This, this is the same God, right, who said, Moses, leave me alone so that my anger will burn and I'm going to annihilate the people. And now he's saying that he's slow to anger. Is God really slow to anger? See, here's the, here's the problem. We read he's slow to anger and our minds instantly go back to Exodus 32. And we say, that doesn't look like slow to anger. That looks like quick to anger. But we failed to consider all the other acts of sin and rebellion that have transpired before we ever even get to chapter 32. From the very moment that God brings his people out of Egypt, they are standing at the Red Sea. And immediately they begin to question whether or not God is going to save them or if he's just going to allow them to be destroyed. He miraculously saves them and he brings them into the wilderness. They begin to complain that they don't have enough water, that they don't have enough food. They begin to ask, is God really among us or not? And God does not strike them dead. 
Listen, brother or sister who does not believe that God is slow to anger, if you don't think that God is slow to anger, it's because you don't have a clear view of how sinful you are. If you knew and recognized how often you sin in thought and word and action, you would be stunned at how slow to anger this holy God is to your sin. He is abounding, overflowing in loving kindness and faithfulness. Loving kindness, this, this sort of covenant kind of love, this, this love that binds two people together and a faithfulness, a fidelity to that covenant relationship, he is overflowing in that quality and characteristic. For all the sin and for all the rebellion that his people do, when they turn and they come back to the Lord, what do they find? They find that the Lord has more love and more fidelity to give unfaithful people. Who does that? Only God. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. To drive the point home, these are the three major categories or three major terms that can be used covering all the bases. He forgives iniquity. Iniquity oftentimes is the word that's used to refer to just our twistedness, our our corruption, the fact that we're just bent by nature as fallen people. He forgives that twisted, corrupt nature and the way that it manifests itself. He forgives transgression, meaning that when we sin by crossing a line, when God says, don't do this, and we say, I'm going to do that, He forgives that transgression, that crossing of the line. When God says, you must do this, and we say, I don't want to do that, God forgives that as well. And he forgives sin. Anything else that falls somewhere along the spectrum of corruption and transgression that you can call sin, all of that, he forgives. And he will in no way leave the guilty unpunished. Now, how does that work? How can you be forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin, and in the same breath say, and I don't leave the guilty unpunished? That's what you just said. People who are guilty of iniquity, transgression, and sin are forgiven. They're not punished. But you say that you do punish iniquity, transgression, and sin. Which is it? All right, let me give, let me give two answers to this. Hold your place here. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
And look at verses 9 and 10. Listen to the similarities to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, but then a few additions that perhaps bring some clarity to us. Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. But repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. One way to wrestle with, or I think to reconcile the apparent contradiction that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin and, and does not leave the guilty unpunished is to say that for those people who truly belong to him, for those who truly love the Lord, they can expect constant forgiveness when they go to the Lord to confess their sin. But for those who do not truly belong to the Lord, who are his people in name only, who merely confess to be a Christian or a follower of Christ, but in fact are not, to those people who do not love the Lord, they are not guaranteed any forgiveness. Their sins, their transgressions have not found satisfaction. They can expect only God's righteous judgment. But it goes one step further than that because even for those of us who truly belong to the Lord, the reason that he is able to forgive our iniquity, transgression, and sin is because he punished Jesus for the guilt that was ours as if it was his. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and I do not leave unpunished. And in God's grace and mercy, his abounding loving kindness to his people, he took my guilt and your guilt, and he placed that guilt on his own son and counted his son as being the one who is guilty, deserving of punishment, so that you and I could be forgiven and pardoned. That is how God, at one and the same time, forgives guilty sinners, and also punishes sin at the same time. He is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. This is who God is, compassionate and gracious, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. This is who God is to his people. This is what God reveals to those whom he has brought into his favor. 
The only way to know that God is a gracious and compassionate God is to know him through the mercy that comes by Jesus Christ. And let me press on this a little bit further. This, verses 6 and 7, what, what God says about himself in his character, this is who God is to his people in their sin. When you have harsh words with your wife or your children, when you cheat on your taxes, when you have that corrupt thought that goes through your mind or you harbor and cherish sinful desires, when you do the things that you know you ought not to do and you don't do the things you know that God is telling you to do, who is God to you in that moment? To those who would acknowledge that they have sinned and who return to him, they find that God is full of forgiveness. Not on your best day, on your worst day. Turn with me to John 17. John 17, look at verse 6, and then we're going to jump down to verse 11 to draw two connections to Exodus 34. This is Jesus speaking, praying to the Father, and Jesus says, I have manifested or revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What does that mean? I have manifested your name to the men that you gave me. It's hard not to see that there is something similar going on here with what Jesus says to what the Lord is saying in Exodus 34, that he is going to proclaim his name to Moses. I'm going to tell you something about me. Moses wants to see something about God, and God says, I'll let you hear something about me. I'll tell you about myself. When we get to Jesus, we not only get to hear, but we get to see, as it were, what God is like. In the same way that God reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 34, God is revealing his name, his character, what he is really like when he sends Jesus. Listen, people, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, We've been singing praises to that three and one, one and three. Don't think, don't fall prey to the suspicion that the real compassion and mercy that is offered to you is offered to you only through the Son, Jesus Christ. And it's because of Jesus then that he goes and he placates the Father or satisfies him and convinces him to be nice to you, to forgive you when he really doesn't want to. That's, that's not the way that it works. Jesus says, my mission on this earth 
was to show in flesh and blood what the Father is really like. When you see the mercy and compassion of Jesus for sinners and disease-ridden people and tax collectors and prostitutes, people who are undeserving to be welcomed in, and when you see Jesus eating with them and dining with them and welcoming them in and speaking words of comfort and peace, you are to see that is what the Father is like. But it gets even better than that. Verse 11, John 17, 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. And then listen to this. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Listen, listen, listen. The forgiveness, the mercy, the compassion that God offers to his people is a unique and exclusive gift that he gives to those who belong to him. The working out of this kind of compassion and grace, that is a unique, that is a family gift, in other words. If you're not in the family, you don't have the privileges of these gifts. You don't know God as Father, you know him only as judge. And our hearts are tempted to think, oh, please don't let me fall out of the family. Don't let me be like that one or that one. Don't let me be like him or her. What happens if I fall out of his good graces and I don't have access to his mercy and compassion anymore? That's never going to happen. The same nature and character of God that grants you undeserved forgiveness and grace every time you sin. It is that same nature that holds you and keeps you as his child so that the next time that you sin, you can get more grace and mercy and forgiveness. You will not be lost because of your sin. No one has a God like that. No one deserves a God like that. And that's who we have. That's who we have because of Jesus. That's who we have because of the Spirit who dwells within us. And so is it any wonder then knowing how bleak and how dark the sin and the rebellion of the people are how unbelievably good and majestic, how shockingly good God is to his people. That Moses, when he hears God say, this is who I am, what does Moses do? He bows low and he worships. The more that you come to know God for who he truly is, the deeper your worship will be. The more you come to know God for who he is and for who he 
shows himself to be, the more humble you will become. The more clearly you see your sin in the light of his good glory, the more you will be amazed that he has granted you forgiveness again. And the more that you recognize that he has given you forgiveness again, the more you will want to pray and sing and share with others the joy that only forgiven people can have. That's why we're here. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. He forgives our iniquity, transgression, and sin, and does not leave unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, this is the God that we worship. This is the God who has been shown to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the God who makes it possible for us to gather week after week to sing his praises again. Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, for making gods in our own images. Not so much with the work of our hands as much as in our minds and in our hearts, thinking of you, things that run contrary or run against what you have revealed about yourself. Forgive us for thinking that your mercy and grace does not run as deep as what it does. For assuming that you are like us. We praise you that because of the atonement that you have given in Jesus Christ, that because of the new birth that we receive through the Holy Spirit, that for those who belong to you, for those who have been united to Christ by the Spirit, that every time we sin and fall flat on our face, whether knowingly or unknowingly, whether in willful disobedience or through a haphazard act of weakness, that every time that happens, we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, would you cause that kind of security in your grace to give us more confidence, to help us to pray more, to sing more loudly, to be more confident in our witness to our lost family members and coworkers, classmates. Father, help us to see you. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.